Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And we have another Republican congressperson who's lied about being Jewish. We have a fun but important show today. Democracy Docket's Mark Elias talks to us about what we can do to protect our democracy. Then we'll talk to Wisconsin Democrats Chair Ben Wickler, who will explain why this upcoming state Supreme Court race is one of the most important races in the country. But first, we have the host of the enemies list, the one, the only, the Lincoln Project's Rick Wilson. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Rick. Wilson. How are you this morning? We're all a little bleary-eyed, though I've been up for five hours. So I want to talk to you about the alien invasion and the spy balloons. They're going to be mad if they're aliens and we've been shooting them down, right? You know, as, as, as Stuart Stevens, who is a man of great wisdom, tweeted the other day, he said, you know what this probably is, is some billionaire from another galaxy who bought an expensive spaceship to feel important. And now he's going to be pissed off. <laughs> I'm not such an aviation nerd that I had the live stream of the Salt Lake City Northern Sector 15 in Montana tuned in last night. I, well, that wasn't me. I was listening to the fighter planes chase whatever the fuck they were chasing in Alaska. I mean, look, the funny part of it is I came into to, to my professional career before politics as like the last generation of young cold warriors, right? Right. And no one wanted to admit it, I think, for the last three or four years. But the Cold War is really, really back. I mean, it's really right. back. Yeah, but during the Cold War, we didn't have two different enemies. 
Yeah, we did. Until the rapprochement between the U.S. and China during Nixon. Right. We faced both the the red Chinese, as they said, yeah. and the Soviets. Actually, we've got more than two enemies now. We've got a whole passel of them. But the Occam's razor answer to this is these are some kind of intelligence platform. Likely, as the first one was from the Chinese, I think we will have a lot of confusion as to what they are, what they look like until we start you know, getting high-res photographs and whacking a few more of them out of the sky. This is a Cold War moment where it's better that we relieve the tensions between our nations in low-intensity things like this than in high-intensity things like, in China's case, you know, a direct shooting war over Taiwan. I'm no military expert, but that seems bad. Yeah, that would be extremely sporty and not great. It would not go well for anybody. It's one of those things where, yeah, the Chinese might win. They might take Taiwan. But several million people will probably die in the process. Not a fun outcome. But, you know, look, my my that's the Occam's razor explanation. The the other explanation is, you know, they're here and they're pissed off. Wait, that's aliens or the Chinese? No, the aliens. I mean, that's the other explanation. Oh, OK. I'm hoping they're here. They're pissed off. They're all going to look like Donald Trump and they're going to come from a planet with nothing but low rent casinos and golf courses. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited. Why did you treat that ambassador with such scorn? I'm excited because um, this has gotten even stupider. <laughs> I am your huckleberry for getting stupider. That's right, for getting stupider. So we have three balloons, all three shot down, two shot down, <laughs> very quickly, one shot down after a couple of days. I want to talk to you about the Republican response to the balloon shooting down. May I, may I summarize it for you? Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Oh, my God. Why isn't Joe Biden shooting down the balloon? He shot down the balloon. How escalatory and dangerous. Right. That's it, basically. I, I was talking to a Democratic official the other day. They were a little, you know, it's like we did the right thing and this was the right thing. And a, defen a Democratic defense official. We did the right thing. This was done by the book. The DOD had point and we can't make these happy. Why? Which of them can I go talk to still to make sense with them? I said, look. Behind closed doors, there are probably a half a dozen of them in the Senate that get it and are reasonable people and and aren't just going to be assholes for the purpose of being assholes. The rest of them are locked in this performative horseshit kabuki cycle where absolutely everything is the worst, the end, the doom, the apocalypse, and it's all Joe Biden's fault. And when then Joe Biden does the thing that either A, they said they wanted Right. B, they claimed Trump would have done, or C, that generically speaking, any responsible president would do. Right. And when it turns out he's had these longer considered strategic discussions on how to handle these problems because he's not stupid, he doesn't deal with everything from a place of emotion, they get incredibly upset because the cognitive dissonance they are required to maintain in their lives at all times requires them to treat you know, Joe Biden, as the as was said the other day, he's either a senile, doddering old man or he's an international criminal communist mastermind. Right, right, right. And there's not a lot of room in between the two. I want to quote Mike Turner, Republican of Ohio. This is today to Jake Tapper. The Biden administration does seem somewhat trigger happy. Although this is certainly preferable to the permissive environment that they showed when the Chinese spy balloon was coming over some of our most sensitive sites. So uh, you damned if you do, damned if you don't. Of course you are. That's the game they play. Remember, it's important for people to realize the game we're actually in is not the old normative politics of the past. The game we're actually in is how can every single day be filled up with a message cycle on the Republican machine 
from Fox all the way down to the bottom feeder weirdo crazies on Twitter and social media. How can it all be filled up every day with a message of crisis, panic, chaos, danger, division? Joe Biden is leaving us open to the dangers of Transtifa Sharia law. <laughs> That's TM, bitches. I invented Transtifa. <laughs> and this leads me to my next question for you, which is this poll that Abby Phillips put up this morning. It's a uh, Washington Post poll. This is the Weaponization Committee, which was Tucker Carlson's idea, a new church committee where Republicans could strike back against, uh, you know, and really Benghazi Biden. And here is the yeah. poll, okay, from the first week of, or actually before it even started. Uh, what do Americans think about the House Committee on Weaponization of Government? 36%, which is about Trump's base, think it's a legitimate investigation. 56% attempt to score political points. The MAGA base, which is the sole driver of everything inside the Republican Party, Okay. There are no moderates who are going to stand up and be bold. There are no more Liz Cheney's or Adam Kinzinger's. They're gone. They're all dead, politically speaking. They're over. It's done. The American people get to see Jim Jordan in his weird, sweaty, no jacket, uh, mentally deficient. I mean, the guy looks like somebody who was raised on mold, lead paint, and plastic bottle vodka, you know, from the womb. He's stupid. He's, mm -hmm. They see him being stupid. They see Comer. I mean, and by the way, just as quick aside, Okay, was there some fucking meeting inside the caucus where like, you know, we need somebody who's dumber than Jim Jordan, but also really lacks any kind of charisma, humor, warmth, or engagement. But but he has to be really stupid. He has to be a stupid person. So who did they pick? Comer. Yeah, Comer. He's <laughs> doing the media rounds, yeah. He makes Jim Jordan look like he's a Nobel Prize winner in string theory. He's so terrible on television. Here's the reality of all of it. We live in our bubble of Washington, New York, media, the politics bubble. Tallahassee. Yeah, and then, yeah, well, believe me, every fucking reporter <laughs> in America is about to start getting an apartment here. Yeah. Every political consultant on the Republican side from Washington, you cannot now go out to a restaurant in this town without seeing some Republican from Washington who I've known for 20 or 30 years, and they act really uncomfortable because you know what I do every time? I go up like a Labrador retriever, like, hey, man, it's so good to see you. Huh? Because they're, this town is full of like snitches now, right? So right. the DeSantis people are like, I, I had one guy literally, literally like, I go up to his table at this restaurant the other night. I'm like, hey, buddy, how are you? Because I know there's some DeSantis people in the same restaurant. And he's just oh, like, Jesus. he looks like I've killed his fucking dog. <laughs> <laughs> so well, it's good you're having a good time, but... But more about the apocalypse. <laughs> well, well, it's nice to know that there's a lot of Florida fuckery, but I want to ask you, what we're seeing now is a Republican Party that's extremely mad at Mitch McConnell. We're seeing a lot of, like, Rick Scott v. Mitch McConnell, and even, in my mind, I think Rick Scott gets crushed by Mitch McConnell. I don't think you come for Mitch McConnell unless you're sure you have a kill shot. Excuse my See, obviously metaphorical metaphor. There is a thing about politicians from Florida, and Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis were both inheritors of this mighty political machine, okay? Right. And Rick Scott had all of his own money, 
But this mighty political machine that elects these guys over and over again, it makes it all of his old money that he got from from stealing from, from Medicare, from stealing from Medicare, yeah. yes, which he now wants to sunset. Right. Yes. Which which is it's like a prank movie starring Voldemort. Yeah. As a heist. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to steal all the old people's money. Eat more cat food, Grandma. Right. But that system <laughs> that elected both of these guys made their lives feel, and Marco also. It made their lives feel easy. It made their political lives feel easy. They conflate easy electoral wins with being good at internal politics. Rick Scott has the personality of a Komodo dragon. (laughs) (laughs) Vaguely interesting to watch on a nature documentary, but you don't want to be near that bacteria-infected giant killing machine. He's not a great guy to be around. He's not a warm or engaging person. He doesn't fit in with the club He's not one of the guys. Now, he says that's okay. He likes that. He's sort of, I'm an an outsider. No, he would desperately like to go to the prom. He would desperately like to be one of the cool kids. He would desperately like to sit at the right lunch table. Right. Meanwhile, the cool kids here are Mitch McConnell. So this is not, but yes. I I know. It's it's the club you don't want to be in, right? Right, right, right. But Mitch McConnell, and I wrote this in my second book, Washington is littered with the bodies of people in the Republican Party who thought they were going to fuck Mitch McConnell. And you don't have to like him and you don't have to, to, to think he's a good person to recognize he has game, to recognize that as a Senate minority leader, he arguably has more power than Chuck Schumer. Well, I'm not going to completely go along with that, but yes. The Democrats will someday break the spell of inertia with that guy. We're going to agree to disagree here, but I do think that we are seeing Republicans, I mean, Mitch McConnell got Donald Trump three Supreme Court seats, uh-huh. two of which he didn't have any claim to. Correct. I, I listen, listen, Mitch McConnell is extraordinarily good at politics, okay? Absolutely extraordinarily good at it. Again, you don't have to like him. And this is this is like the, the curse of being an ex-Republican. If I praise the game the guy plays, I, I will get emails. People say, yeah, right. no. No, he's good at what he does. Mitch McConnell is a dark force in our politics at this point because he let Donald Trump off the hook over and over again. And he, for the one fucking time, he could have used his superpowers for good, not for evil. He chose not to. Oh, no question. And I also think ultimately he thought Donald Trump that the leopard wouldn't eat his face and the leopard is in fact coming for his face. Oh, listen, the leopard now has eight or nine seats. Okay. Right. And those eight or nine seats in which he now has complete control that the MAGAs now have complete control over. It's a growing number, not a shrinking number. Listen, after 2012, when the monster of the Tea Party, which I was a part of building, sorry, got loose and put up people like Richard Murdoch, a lot of adults in the room, that included guys like me in the consulting world and guys like the Coke team and a whole bunch of other people, and and most importantly, Mitch McConnell, there was a vow. We are never having these goddamn crazies take over the party again. We are never letting them put their fucking crazy candidates on the ballot again because we could have won a sweeping majority in 2012, but the crazies were in charge. So by 2014, if you were a, if you were the then equivalent of a MAGA, if you were a Tea Party lunatic, somebody was going to come to your house and hold a pillow over your face, politically speaking, until you stopped twitching. Yeah. It happened a lot. It happened all over the country. That was a McConnell operation. There was a desire to get rid of the fuckery. Well, this year, McConnell did not get his choices for U.S. Right. Senate. And so the 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 NRSC and the combined campaigns spent a half a billion dollars 
Now, part of that was Rick Scott fucked it up and spent 175 of it building out his own political lists and operations on their budget. Yeah, I love Which, that story. Imagine a how is story. it Rick Scott, who could have seen it coming? <laughs> that, that Rick that Scott guy would, be would have corrupt. taken over an yeah. institution, used it for his own benefit, corrupted it, and spent all the money. Who could have seen it yeah, coming, really? Molly? I, I just don't... I. It's so unprecedented. How did this happen? Yeah. Unbelievable. But Scott and McConnell are now in open warfare. And when Mitch McConnell, they said, well, I find it hard to believe he could even be reelected in his own state. I was a large number of old people in the country. I just, I don't know. how. Yeah, that wasn't. That was Mitch McConnell's equivalent of saying, I will give you two options. There's a Luger on the table. There's one bullet in it. You make the right, you make the right choice for your family. You know, that's Mitch McConnell. Like, that is a clear signal to Scott. Now, Rick Scott has a half a billion dollars of his own money, which, by the way, if you want to talk about, like, where the fuck did income inequality happen in this country? The guy has not had any kind of business at all since he was thrown out of HCA in the early 2000s, okay? Yeah. When he ran for governor of Florida, he was worth about $175 million. And right. conservative estimates now... And and he he's very clever about how they put it in trust for his kids and his wife and all this shit. I talked to someone recently who said they believe Rick Scott is worth five hundred and seventy five million dollars. So he can he can dump another hundred mil into his campaign and not break a sweat. Yeah, or someone else's, which is yeah. probably more his choice. One of the things that I think is is a really important data point, which I haven't seen so much reporting on, is that while Kevin McCarthy elevated the people who did not make him speaker, Mitch McConnell actually punished the people who came at him. Yes. And Josh Hawley has been downgraded and kicked off a committee while Matt Gates has been elevated. And I want you to talk about that for a minute. Look. Kevin McCarthy has made a deal, and the deal is with the proverbial devil. What is the fundamental of all Mistopheleian deals? The devil always fucks you in the end. That's the typical archetype of the whole Loki, trickster, devil character. They always break their word. They always break the deal. Kevin, every day, is like, nope, that leopard's not going to eat my face, as you as your analogy just was a minute ago. They are so excited to eat his face. They're going to eat his face over the debt ceiling. The funny part is he's he's wedged. He's got these these handful of moderates that we're pressuring at Lincoln to like say that you won't crash the economy, and they're like humana, humana, humana. But the Gates people, part of the deal behind closed doors was we will never vote for a debt ceiling increase without massive social security and benefits cuts. So McCarthy, he really wants to be speaker for longer than the next fourteen months. He really does. But it's very difficult to see how he gets there because he has made a deal with the crazies. It also says something about the House caucus that for the most part, the whole show, I mean, remember, he was Donald Trump's candidate and everybody that was in his caucus were Donald Trump's people. And all those 200 plus people that were with him from the beginning were always Donald Trump's people because they wanted Donald Trump to be happy because Donald Trump runs the Republican Party base to this minute, to this very second. And man, I have some new polling on that, which it would scare the shit out of Republicans if they read it. Yeah. Tell us about the new polling. One more thing. McConnell understands how to punish and reward, okay? His problem is McConnell is not good at the outside game of social media politics and of the entertainment industrial complex of the Republican Party. Right. That's a continuing story. Both of them made those choices based on bad predicates. I saw some polling on Friday, a briefing I was in on Friday, and Donald Trump has the suicide vest on, and he's sitting in a car loaded with explosives, and it's parked in the middle of a minefield. Right. And if he decides that he's pissed off and says, 
I've been, I've been treated very badly. Do not vote for Ron DeSanctimonious. Right. And he, and he loses. He wouldn't even have to run as an independent. He wouldn't even have to put John Jr. on the ballot, which, by the way, is how they'll get out of the sore loser laws in most states. Wait, what? If Trump loses in the primary. Right. A lot of states don't let you run in a primary and then file it as an, as an independent. Right. Like 22 of them don't let you do that. The trick they're going to do is they'll just put Don Jr. on the ballot in those states to draw off just enough Republican votes to kill it. Okay. To kill the party. He will not allow Ron DeSantis or any other Republican to become president of the United States. And he has then from the numbers I've just seen, and we'll be talking more about these soon. He has. And even if it's even if I'm off by a factor of five, the number of Republicans who will either stay home, leave the party write Trump in, vote for another third-party candidate if Trump doesn't have the nomination. It's astounding. And this was a an enormous national survey, enormous, deep, academically rigorous. It's not some, you know, fly-by-night, you know, brand-new polling firm. It really illustrated to me why everybody who's like, why are you still talking about Trump? It's DeSantis's party. No, 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 bless your hearts. It is not. It is Donald Trump's party, and it is still Donald Trump's party at a level that people haven't even contemplated. DeSantis is, is very fat and happy right now, metaphorically speaking. He's never happy. But with this belief that that the billionaire class and that the elite conservative media at National Review. Well, and also Fox News. And Rupert. Rupert's got a hard on for him right now. Will stick with him and they will and that they have enough influence now inside the base to make it impossible for Trump to win. It's exactly inverted. The, the the MAGA base now is losing faith in Fox News because now they don't really care. They're like, I'm on Twitter, I'm on OAN, I'm on Telegram. That base is moving, that media bubble is falling into a different iteration than it was in 16. And as much as National Review wants to be the tiger beat of, of the Republican Party and treat Ron DeSantis, like he's Sean Cassidy in 1977, and they squee about him in every article. It's like, do you know the bold leadership of Ron DeSantis was shown today because he got up and took a crap this morning? I mean, he, they can't stop. But those people are so distant from the base now. The base is becoming, I knew in 16, during a lot of focus grouping, that it was more alien than the than the establishment understood. I knew by 20, and we could all see it by 20, that it was this new conspiracy world and this alternate facts universe that was created over time by Trump. But now it, I mean, speaking of alien invasions, they have language, there's been linguistic drift inside who the Republicans are. They speak a different vernacular than the rest of the country and the world does now. They believe things that are not true because they are not prompted by the things that used to drive American politics. Rick Wilson, thank you for joining us. As always, I'm a ray of fucking sunshine i know but here we are when you have health insurance it's easy to think i'm covered no worries right well not so fast what about your out-of-pocket costs that can be a lot of money for you and your family and if you're like me you can't help but wonder was i overbilled you're not alone. It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? It's a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. 
HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors. So you pay only what you owe. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. HealthLock finds medical bill errors before you pay. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. 
Mark Elias is the founder of Democracy Docket. Welcome to Fast Politics, Mark. Thank you for having me. We're very excited to have you. And I try to have anyone who has like a a legion of far right haters. <laughs> then you got the right guy. <laughs> like the demonization and how much they hate you. And I have that too. I mean, I don't have it on the same scale, unfortunately for me. But, you know, I have people at C- come over to me at CPAC and yell at me for some real or imagined slight. And so I feel your pain. Explain to me how you got a little bit about how you got to be the great demon to the right. It's a question I ask myself all the time because there's really nothing about my background or early legal career that would have predicted it. I was, you know, I grew up in a Jewish household in New York, went to college in upstate New York, went to Duke Law School, came to Washington, D.C., was at a big law firm. Yeah, I was representing Democrats and voting rights and and all of that. But there was a sense in D.C. for most of my career that the fights between the parties would be on policies, but fundamentally, both parties were committed to democracy. So I think I became demonized because after 2016, it became clear that the bipartisan consensus that I thought existed around, you know, basic principles, like we don't ban books, <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. we, don't, <laughs> yes. we don't elect authoritarian crazy people and we believe in democracy. I thought that was bipartisan. And all of a sudden I realized that the people on the other side didn't. And now That led them to focus a lot of their energy against me and others, people like you, because we're just continuing to say the same things we've always said. Right. And they have become part of a cult-like organization. Yeah. No, I mean, it is completely interesting. But you had been fighting for voting rights and then you sort of kicked it up a notch a couple years ago and went on your own and started really being focused on these statewide cases. And so I want to get into that because one of the reasons I think you've been so demonized is you're very effective. Yeah. So we started, my team and I started focusing on the mechanics of voting and litigating a lot of lawsuits. You know, people right now think that we're in the slow period of the election cycle. And I remind them we're litigating 48 voting cases in 17 states. We have two cases that we're waiting on the U.S. Supreme Court to rule on. And all of that is the product of Trumpism. You know, Donald Trump decided that he was going to attack voting and attack voting rights and attack access to the ballot. And I felt like it was important that I do everything I could to prevent that. Yeah, a noble and also very important uh, job. Yeah, I grew up in a household that was immigrant and pro-democratic, and there was a sense that we owed to this country to protect voting rights, minority rights, the rights of freedom and democracy. And so it never occurred to me to do anything other than that. And as the country took a very dangerous term, a turn rather under Donald Trump, I became more and more committed to those fights because someone has to take those fights on. 
Yeah. So I want to ask you, and I think I relate to this a lot. I mean, in my own, obviously, I'm not nearly as effective as you are, but I relate to this feeling that if I don't do this, no one else will. Right. Which is something that we have really seen. A lot of people have that kind of feeling after Trumpism. So I want to ask you, what states are things going great in? That's the first question. So I wrote a piece recently for Democracy Docket about the five things that every Democratic-controlled trifecta state, there are 17 states that Democrats control everything, the five laws they need to pass. So there are certainly states that are doing better. You know, California has comparatively better voting laws. There are states that have made Uh, dramatic improvements in their voting laws. You know, Michigan made dramatic improvements in its voting laws. But I am quick to point out that there is more that every state can do. And every state ought to be looking for ways to improve access to voting in their states and to strengthen our democracy so that the next time we have an authoritarian candidate on the right, which unfortunately is likely not more than a couple of years away, or less than a couple or, of years yeah, away. Yeah, I was going to yeah, say, yeah. Is, is likely less than a couple of years away. They are hardened against it. So I don't want to be a Debbie Downer and just say they are all bad, but they all can stand to be improved. And Democrats right now have a historic opportunity to do that. And they need to take it and they need to go big and they need to make those changes where they can. And then we need to fight as hard as we can in every other state to ensure that voting rights and democracy are protected. So what states are you really worried about? So I continue to be very worried about Georgia, even though, you know, we've had a couple of good election cycles in Georgia, because Georgia has really instituted not just a legal system of challenging voter eligibility, but a culture now of it. In 2021, 364,000 Georgians were challenged, which is really an extraordinary number. It's larger than any mass challenge since the Voting Rights Act. And in 2022, we saw 100,000 Georgians challenged. Republicans and their allies are mounting these mass challenges to prevent tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Georgians from being able to vote. So Georgia is high on my list. I continue to be very worried about Texas, which has some of the worst voting rules in the in the country, and Florida, which has had pretty good voting rules, but which right now has an authoritarian leader who has undermined voting in the passage of already one anti-voting bill, undermined the redistricting process in contravention of the state constitution, and is now in the book banning phase of, of authoritarian. I would say those are the states I'm principally focused on, but I'm also worried about Ohio. Ohio just passed a series of restricted voting laws that, you know, made the ID laws tighter, made drop boxes harder to to be used, shortened periods of time for people to request and return mail-in ballots. So I wish I could say it's just a handful of states, but pretty much any place Republicans control the legislative and gubernatorial process, we are worried about and focused on. Yeah, that seems like a really important data point. I'd love to focus on like Wisconsin is a great example because they have this Supreme Court election in April. Tony Ivers, who's a Democrat, is in his second term, but he has been unable to change the voting rights there because of the state legislature. I was shocked to hear that it's one of the hardest. It's like, you know, number 47 or 48 hardest states to vote in. Wisconsin has an upcoming 
state Supreme Court election. Wisconsin, the state Supreme Court there is an interesting court in that you have three very progressive justices. You have four very conservative justices. There is one of those conservative justices whose seat is up for election now. And if that were to flip to a progressive justice, you would see, I suspect, I don't know, but I would suspect you would see a much, much more favorable landscape for voting. Because a lot of the problems in Wisconsin have come at the hands of the Wisconsin legislature, but also the state Supreme Court there that takes an anti-voting cast to many of its decisions in this arena. We just saw in North Carolina how much this can matter. You went from a 4-3 Democratic court to now a 5-2 Republican court, and already those five justices have granted rehearing in two voting and democracy cases that were decided just last year. So, you know, I hope everyone in Wisconsin participates in that election. Yeah. And the thing I wanted to ask you or where I'm going with this is there are a number of red states that have blue governors. And I'm thinking of Kentucky. Well, Michigan is now purple, but there are a bunch of these Louisiana, a bunch of these states where Democratic governors have come in, but they haven't been able to fix the voting situation. Can we talk about that? Is that because of these state legislatures? So I think it's been hard for Democrats to fix the voting situations unless they control all three pieces of the process. And that's really unfortunate. And you can see that with Governor Evers in Wisconsin, probably more most dramatically. But one of the phenomena of the current era we're in is that there are no pro-voting Republicans. Right. So if Republicans control a legislative body by just one vote, all the efforts to improve voting will fail. Right. All of them. And so look at Pennsylvania now, where you now have a Democratic governor and a Democratic state house. I still think it's going to be impossible to get for Governor Shapiro to fix the problems in Pennsylvania, because as long as they control one chamber, they're going to block it. And that is a problem, you know, from state to state. In North Carolina, Roy Cooper, very good Democratic governor on voting, but the state legislature there just is so hostile to it that there's not a lot that can be accomplished. Unbelievable. How worried are you about the sort of higher up situation like the Supreme Court is very Trumpy? I mean, how worried are you about the other courts and things getting kicked up there? Yeah. So, look, we have the Supreme Court we have. I'm not going to try to sugarcoat that. But I always point out to folks that very few cases go to the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, the Supreme Court hears between 70 and 90 cases a year. There are hundreds of thousands of cases decided every year. There are more than 10,000 that are where Supreme Court review is sought, and they don't hear a lot of these cases. And everyone always says to me, but aren't aren't the federal courts really bad? And I keep saying, well, they're a heck of a lot better now than they were two years ago, right? President Biden is appointing really good judges. Now, are the courts still more conservative than I wish they were on voting rights? Yes. But let me give you one ray of sort of potential hope. So we, my law firm, Elias Law Group, sued Alabama for violating the Voting Rights Act in their redistricting. And the three-judge panel agreed that Alabama had broken the Voting Rights Act. 
Two of those judges have been appointed by Donald Trump. Right. One had been appointed initially by Ronald Reagan. Now, that case is now before the Supreme Court, which you know kind of goes to your macro point. But right. we, we have to keep fighting. We can't just let the, the other side wants us to look and say all is lost. Right. And we have to just keep fighting and picking our battles. And if you look at the win-loss record, we've actually done pretty well in court in the last few years. Well, I mean, it goes to this idea that Democrats tend for such a long time, Democrats didn't do these small, important fights, you know, at the state legislature. And they were so focused on the big picture that Republicans picked up things that, Dem you know, I mean, it's like this idea that there are, you know, that Democrats had uncontested elections in certain places. So I do think when Democrats fight, especially when they're fighting for things like the right to vote, ultimately, I mean, the country was founded on this sort of. Yeah. Look, one of the reasons you asked me early on why Republicans have demonized me, one of the reasons why they've demonized me is I am a Democrat and I fight hard. I fight hard and I don't stop fighting. I will fight for democracy and I will fight for the right to vote, even when the odds are long, we'll keep fighting. And I think that we as Democrats need to realize that the first order of the agenda for every Republican governor and every Republican legislature is to curtail democracy. It's to ban books. It's to, it's to restrict voting rights. It's to do things to undermine our democratic government. And I wish, frankly, Molly, that when Democrats had power, their first order of, on their agenda was to expand democracy, was right. to strengthen institutions of our voting system. But, you know, there are so many things competing for the priorities of those governors and legislatures that I think, you know, I always say Republicans have one thing they want to get done. Right. And Democrats have 50 things they want to get done. I want to ask you about one of the suggestions in your piece is to limit the number of partisan poll watchers. Can you just go in for a minute on that and explain to us? Sure. So there are a number of aspects of the American voting system which are sort of relics of a different era. And one of them was the idea that, you know, you would have representatives of the parties at the polls who would watch the voting process. And there were a lot of reasons why historically that may have been appropriate or not appropriate. But what we've seen is the Republicans weaponize every aspect of the voting and election process to try to undermine it. And one of the ways they do that is by using the ability to put people in the polls to harass voters and harass election officials. And so, you know, we need to make sure, first and foremost, that people who show up to vote are not being intimidated. They're not being harassed. They're not being photographed. There are not people in body armor outside the drop boxes with guns asking them questions, right? And so, you know, I, I, what I say is that we, we need to be clear that someone who is watching the polls is only allowed to watch. They're not allowed to talk. They're not allowed to comment. They're not allowed to threaten. And that they have to do it from a safe distance so that people and election officials don't feel threatened by their presence. So that's one of the five things that I think every Democratic-controlled state could enact today. 
Yeah. I mean, you could see why Republicans are not going to be into that. Yeah. But again, I, you know, let's start with the 17 states where Democrats control the process. Right. Exactly. This is so interesting. I just want to ask you one quick question is what are you watching right now? What's like on the horizon? So on the voting horizon specifically, you know, state legislatures meet. Uh, people don't realize oftentimes that, you know, Congress meets every year in theory, every month of every year. Right. State legislatures oftentimes meet only part year, and they almost always meet this time of year. So we're watching a number of states potentially restrict voting. You know, Idaho is likely going to enact a law that removes state-issued college IDs from the acceptable form of ID. We already saw Ohio pass a omnibus voter suppression law that we're already suing. We see bad voting bills moving their way through states like Florida, states like Georgia, states in the deep south. So we're watching all of those to see which of those become law. And as I always say, if a state is going to pass a restriction on voting that violates Constitution or law, they're going to get sued. And that's my continued message to them today. That's a good message. Thank you so much. I hope you'll come back. Anytime. I'd love to. I know you, our dear listeners, are very busy and you don't have time to sort through the hundreds of pieces of punditry each week. This is why every week I put together a newsletter of my five favorite articles on politics. If you enjoy the podcast, you will love having this in your inbox every Friday. So sign up at fastpoliticspod.com and click the tab to join our mailing list. That's fastpoliticspod.com. Ben Wickler is the state chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party. Welcome to Fast Politics, Ben. So great to be back with you. I wanted to have you on because a couple weeks ago we had Al Franken on and Al Franken was saying that there's a really big, big election coming up right now. That And it's sort of counterintuitive because you think like, oh, the big election is the run up to 24. But no. You in the great state of Wisconsin have a big election coming up. Can you explain to us what's going on? Wisconsin is a bluish, bright purple state. I say bluish because Democrats have won 14 of the last 17 statewide elections here. But we have the policies of a bright red state in the deep south because we have an incredibly right wing state legislature that is elected based on the most gerrymandered maps in the country. And all of that is happening because we have a state Supreme Court that is dominated by a 4-3 conservative majority. And those things in combination mean that Wisconsin is one of the hardest states to cast a ballot. We're rated 47th out of 50 in ease of voting. Jesus. We're the second hardest state to register to vote in the country. We're a right-to-work state. It's hard to organize a union. All these different laws are tilted against Democrats. And that has been the state of affairs for about 12 years since since the Scott Walker and the right wing swept into power in 2010. But on April 4th, everything could change because in our 4-3 conservative majority Supreme Court, the right wing chief justice is retiring. And so there's an open seat for a 10-year term that will determine the balance of power on our state Supreme Court. And if a progressive candidate wins that race, we could have a state Supreme Court that rules our gerrymandered maps unconstitutional and demands new maps that are actually fair. 
it could strike down. We have one of the most extreme abortion bans in American history. It was passed in the year 1849. There's no exception for rape or incest or the life of the mother, health of the mother. If two doctors agree that the mother's life is imperiled, then you could get a legal abortion. That's crazy. It, it is so bad. Like you can't finish getting trained as an OBGYN in Wisconsin because it's not clear if this law from before the invention of modern medicine applies to abortions as standard care for miscarriages or ectopic pregnancies. Yeah. People are people are getting uh, having to bleeding for days while the hospitals try to figure out whether they're going to be you know, have their doctors sent to jail if they provide basic routine care for people. And this law is going to come before the state supreme court and determine that this is our Kansas abortion referendum essentially. We don't have a ballot right. initiative mechanism. So abortion Voting rights, like our state Supreme Court over and over has figured out how to roll back voting freedoms. That could change if we win a majority and the maps. And all of that could take effect before 2024. So this is the election in the state that's been the tipping point state in both of the last two presidential races. The only state where four of the last six presidential races has come down to less than one percentage point. This race will determine the playing field, whether it's slanted to the right or fair and even before the next presidential race. And Wisconsin in 2024, most likely tipping point state in the Electoral College. We have Tammy Baldwin up for re-election in the Senate, which could determine the Senate majority. And in a state, again, 50-50, Republicans have six of our eight congressional seats. So if we get fair maps, we could win two House seats, which would take a big chunk out of Kevin McCarthy's micro House majority. Right. Uh, it's all, all happening here, and it all comes up this April 4th. That is completely crazy. How do you run an election, a Supreme Court election? Because that is sort of counterintuitive, right? It is. I mean, frankly, the right has figured out a long time ago that these are really, really important races. But right. exactly as you say, I think, you know, we have this idea of a judiciary that's not just going to be carrying water for the Republican Party. But the, the Republican Party is totally intertwined with the Federalist Society with these right-wing uh, lawyer networks. So they've been pouring money into these races. And on our side, sometimes we do. This time has to be all hands on deck all the way through. The state party in Wisconsin, are, it's in our constitution to be neutral when there's two progressives running. There's two progressives in the primary, which is February 21st. But the second that's over, we'll have one progressive candidate and one conservative candidate. It's officially a nonpartisan race. So on the ballot, it doesn't say D or R next to the candidates' names. What that means is that the campaign and the party and grassroots groups have to educate people about which candidate has which values so that when they walk in, when they see the names of the candidates, they know that Dan Kelly and Jennifer Doro, the two right wing candidates, would probably uphold the 1849 abortion ban and stomp right. on their voting rights and everything else and to not vote for them, vote for one of whichever the progressive candidate is, either, either uh, Janet Protasewicz or Everett Mitchell. What that means is that we're going from kind of zero to 60 on name recognition. We have to educate voters that there is an election. These are the stakes. These are the candidates. These are the issues. But it also means like normally these races are way lower turnout, like half or even a third of the turnout of a November election you know, with partisan candidates. It means that in this kind of environment, every time you are a volunteer and make a phone call or talk to a member of your family or a friend or donate a few bucks to the Democratic Party of Wisconsin, which I would always encourage, um, those donations go much further because you're essentially taking people who are dyed in the wool Democrats and just making sure that they know that this election counts as much as their elections did last fall or, or as they will in 2024. You don't have to convince someone to share your values. These people share your values. They just don't know this election is happening. And that means that the impact of actually doing campaign work in this kind of environment is vastly higher. Yeah. No, I mean, it sounds like it. Isn't it sort of cheaper too? 
because this is so off season, if that makes any sense. It's exactly right. These elections, I mean, this will probably be the most expensive judicial race in, in U.S. history, which sounds impressive until you find out that right. the last most expensive judicial race was $15 million. And like right. the November elections last year were billions of dollars, like individual right. states would have several hundred millions of dollars poured into races like our Senate race or the governor's race in Wisconsin. This is a this is bargain basement politics with, you know, super deluxe five star political impact. I want to just talk to you for a minute about some of the lessons from Wisconsin. Like a lot of pundits said, and and you never said this, and, you know, you are on the ground in Wisconsin, which I find very helpful. A lot of pundits said that Mandela Barnes was too lefty and that he wasn't going to win because he was too lefty. I don't know where that came from, but I heard a lot of pundits saying that he barely lost. And if polls had been more accurate, he would have been able. I mean, Ron Johnson really could have been defeated had there been more accurate polling to raise money. I mean, do you think that's true? Am I crazy? I think you're right. And this part of what's so frustrating is that it's exactly the punditry that you're describing that led to the loss. And what I mean by that right. is people came out of the gate and were like, uh, like, you know, deprioritize Wisconsin. And so in the in the part of the campaign right after the primary, when Mandela became the nominee, Republican super PACs came in that the, the Uline, they're the biggest Republican donors in the right. country. They they poured millions in the Diane Hendricks. Between those two right wing billionaires, they put in twenty nine million dollars in independent expenditures. Right, and the the funding gap between the two sides was twenty six million dollars favoring Republicans. So this these two families alone, who by the way had hundreds of Got millions huge. of dollars in tax breaks that yeah right. John, Ron from Johnson, Ron right. Johnson. Yes, right. Yeah. So they put in all this money, but if there had been like a few million dollars in, in ads in September from more than we had from, from progressive groups, like we wouldn't have, Mandela wouldn't have fallen behind in that period when people were overwhelmingly seeing attack ads and not seeing a defense and counterpunch. Right. And when, so Mandela during that time was doing this very intensive fundraising and by kind of early mid-October had the funds to go back on offense and like independent groups came in as well. And that got us to about even in terms of Republican versus Democratic ads. And he, when people saw his message and the GOP's message, he gained a point a week and, and ended one point down. If we, if that right, money had right, come right, in two right. weeks earlier, he would have won by two points. We saw it and had dead. Or if he'd had more money, as Democrats did who won across the country, if there had been a flood of money at the end, the way that you know there was for like Sarah Gideon. and Right, Sarah Gideon in 2020. That's just exactly right. That could have taken and resulted in a victory too. In a funny way, Mandela kind of proves the case that he could have won. Like he, yeah. he came closer than any other Democrat did in the country to flipping an incumbent Republican seat. He did better than Russ Feingold did in 2016 or 2010. Right. Like he had a powerhouse campaign. It just didn't have enough money. And it didn't have enough money because pundits said he doesn't have a chance. And I mean, that was the message I kept hearing. He's too lefty. He's black. I don't know, again, that that Wisconsin isn't going to elect someone who's black, even though he had one. I mean, I think that's really racist, honestly. And I also think he won a very tight primary. Like the man had proven that he could win. And then somehow the pundit class decided that he couldn't. There was there was this kind of, you know, smug national fad of being like, 
oh, the poll, at first the polls were saying Democrats were going to do great. And then it became, oh, the polls must be overstating the case for Democrats. And then these right-wing garbage polls came flooding in saying Democrats were going to lose in a red wave landslide. And a lot of people started freaking out about states where Democrats won by a bunch of points. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like Washington state is a really good example. Yeah. Yeah. Like keep your eye on the ball, man. In Wisconsin, when you have a fully funded campaign on both sides, both sides start at 48%. And then it's like, are you going to actually do everything you need to do to push it over the finish line? I, the, we, our internal polls on election day, it said we were like, we're going to lose by one point and we did. And it, yeah, the, that period where people were saying, oh, I know you're the Democratic state chair. You have to say Mandela could win. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> like, we really could win this race. Right. I want to ask you one other really annoying thing. But you are a state chair who's really good at your job. That happens for sure. But usually in the media, we tend to focus more on the state chairs that are not so good at their jobs. I mean, I live in New York, so our state chair is terrible and needs to resign tomorrow. So I want to ask you, what do you think the sort of secret to being a good state chair is? And I should say, there are some dynamite state chairs. Oh, I know. Laura Barnes in Michigan, who I learn from all the time. No, Michigan is incredible. Yes. And part of the secret, like you look at the fact they have a trifecta now, that came about because Lavora was doing this work to win Supreme Court races years ago and like, you know, supporting these statewide ballot initiatives. We don't have a ballot initiative process in Wisconsin, but in Michigan they do. They used it to the hilt, these down ballot, like election judges, all this stuff that created the recipe where you get a blowout success like 2022. In one way, that's the key for state party chairs is like you have to figure out all the dominoes that have to fall to get to the point where you have the wins that you need. And then not skip those local elections that wind up having huge downstream consequences. Right. Uh, That's one piece. Another piece is having the elected officials, either you're in a state where there are not statewide Democrats, so the party can actually kind of do this without needing their support or have alignment from the Democrat, elected Democrats in your state that you're actually going to build a power base at the state party that can do work independent of the, let's say, governor's campaign or Senate campaigns. And we're, Lavora and I are both lucky to have that with our elected Democrats in our states. They want a strong party. But in some places, the state party chair is kind of chosen by the governor and their job is to, you know, not make the governor look bad as opposed to figure out how to win every possible election. You mean like in a state that I might live in. But yeah, so that is a good point, though, that you focus on winning every single election. I was at this thing last night and I actually got to meet Maxwell Frost, who is a friend of this podcast and also a 25 year old congressman from Florida. And we were talking about that there's going to be a state chair election in Florida. And that Democratic Party has had a very tough time. So I just was curious sort of about the kind of, you know, the machinations there and how it works. So every state has different procedures for choosing their chair. I had to run a campaign with, I had a campaign manager. Yeah, I remember this. It was like a big whole thing. Other places, it's like the state central committee, which is big or small, depending on the state, makes the choice. But if there is a Democratic powerhouse politician in the state, usually people who are on those committees don't want to be on the wrong side of that person. It's not always true, but like you kind of have to line up the big stakeholders. And then in some ways, like, you know, if you're not facing a wall of opposition like that, you want to, I think the second big thing is state chairs should be organizers at heart. And I, I tend to think it's good for elected officials also to be organizers at heart, but you want to be mm. thinking not just about like, 
how you look in the media or what your position on something is going to be. You want to think, how do I motivate and mobilize and organize other people to all come around this common goal to do this thing that has to happen? Because that's fundamentally the work of the party is building alignment across this big, messy democratic coalition. It's not just like for the party to issue a statement when something happens in the news. And so much work goes in on the back end to like ensuring that there are candidates running for X, Y, and Z offices and making sure that like there's a strategy for what the grassroots group should do versus what the party can uniquely do well. All of that work has to precede the moment when people actually go to the polls. Sort of the Biden plan, which I actually think is quite smart now, is that he's going around after this State of the Union address and sort of bragging about the infrastructure and the Inflation Reduction Act and bringing these blue collar. I mean, I think the phrase blue collars is not the right phrase and nor should we use it. But, you know, these jobs that you can work without a college degree, do you think that will speak to Wisconsinians or do you think they don't? It's (laughs) just like some of these people just are never going to, you know, go along with Biden and just too mad. Wisconsin has has an electorate that's overwhelmingly folks without a college education and overwhelmingly white folks without a college education, although the working class is multiracial here and everywhere else. President Biden's message, it comes from his gut. You know what I mean? It's not just like a focus grouped, pull desert thing. It's it's something that is core to who he is. And it is perfect for the state. He came to Madison first, Madison, Wisconsin, uh, or outside of Madison, DeForest, a uh, laborer's training facility. I was there yesterday uh, and he spoke. I I was in a folding chair right next to a kind of, concrete um, hole in the floor that is used in training to teach people how to replace sewer lines. I've toured the facility before, like this is where the actual work gets done. There was, you know, there were earth moving equipment and, and, you know, all the stuff that people actually use in the shot for the TV cameras. And there were workers who were very packed the place, people in hard hats and reflective vests. And the work that they do is going to be empowered and supported. The person who introduced him explained how her life had been transformed by the laborers union, because she was able to figure out how to have a family supporting job without having a college degree. That is, it's both great policy and it's great politics. And the best message always not only demonstrates what your values are and makes a contrast with the other side, it also speaks to the personal story of the person delivering the message. And this so does for like who Biden is and what he's fought for his whole life. His, I've never seen him give a speech where he doesn't talk about how a job is more than just a paycheck. It's about dignity and pride and self-worth. And that yeah. resonated so much in that room yesterday in Madison, I, or in DeForest. I hope that he crisscrosses the country with that message because it it connects like directly to people's hearts and the kinds of conversations they have when they're not talking about politics. And that that's the test you always want to meet. Yeah, such a good point. You know, after that State of the Union address, my feeling is I think he's better at this than he was 20 years ago. It's interesting. Like, there's a reason why he's why he's president of the United States. And, he, you know, there's a reason why Barack Obama picked him as vice president, why he got elected over and over and over and over, starting very young. And I do feel like he's grown. I've found it really impressive. And part of what's interesting to me is if you look at, you know, these polls that like have doom and gloom, they often reflect a caricature of President Biden that has been intentionally crafted by right wing media. Mm. And when people see him give a speech, it just rips those caricatures to shreds. He's not the person that you see on Fox News. Like they are selectively editing the worst moments for somebody who grew up working to overcome a stutter. 
this is like he can give a speech, he can connect at a human level with the people one after another. I mean, he was on his feet for hours when he was in, in Wisconsin yesterday. Sometimes, you know, I feel like Republicans have created these low expectations for him to soar over. I like I'm feeling right. energized. <laughs> it's true. Ben, this was so great. I hope you will come back because Wisconsin is where it's all happening. Thank you. I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> we, we wake up every day and living it. If anyone who's listening right now wants to be involved, go to wisdoms.org slash donate or wisdoms.org slash volunteer. Honestly, like spend a few hours calling Democrats in Wisconsin about this election and you will get so fired up because people do care so much. And a lot of people lack the most basic knowledge about this. We will train volunteers. You don't have to have any prior experience. You don't need to know anything about this race. If you've listened this far on the podcast, you're now an expert and you can make a giant, giant difference with, with dollars and with time. Thank you, Ben. And now your moment of fuckery. Rick Wilson. Yes? We've brought the band back together for the moment of fuckery. What is your moment of fuckery? My moment of fuckery this week is Elon Musk turning off vital parts of Starlink, uh, the satellite system for Ukraine. Oh, Jesus. They are desperately trying to fend off a gigantic Russian human wave attack that's coming in the coming days and weeks. And this week, Starlink unilaterally decided, a program by the, that's being paid for by the U.S. Department of Defense, thank you very much, they decided to shut it off and not allow the Ukrainians to use it for drones gathering intelligence. Wow. This is going to give the Russians a massive advantage on the battlefield. This is going to give the Russians a massive advantage on in combat operations. And once again, this is a company that is that is wholly controlled by one guy who is now listening not to his advisors, his attorneys, his, his you know, even his shareholders at Tesla. Pizza Jack. He's listening to Pizza Jack and Mike Cernovich and all the rest of this mouth breathing weirdo nat pop goon group. And he controls a piece of technology that has been able to save the Ukrainian people from a genocidal Vladimir Putin. And now he's switching off key elements of it. Wow. That to me is my moment of fuckery. Uh, I wish I had a more lighthearted moment of fuckery for you. And I know I, I get a lot of people like, how dare you say that you want the government would interfere with a private company? Our tax dollars are paying for this. I'm a big old free market guy and everything, but uh, SpaceX does a lot of business with the government. Yeah. And you know what? I'm an, old, I'm an old hand at this. I've been around defense contractors my whole professional career, working in the defense department and then for some defense contractors. There's a lot of give and take in, in the real world. You know, folks didn't mind when Donald Trump wanted to tell companies how to run things. I think that somebody ought to get on the phone with Glenn Shotwell at SpaceX, the CEO of SpaceX and of, of Starlink. You know what? You know, we might have to review some of these things because I'm really concerned that our corporate cultures aren't matching up right now. Right. So don't worry about your launch. We, we'll, we'll get you a permit eventually. <laughs> I mean, we've got to look at other competitors in the market. It's a crowded field. Right. <laughs> you know? right. I mean, and, and and again, as a free market guy, I hate that kind of shit. But as someone who's watching a guy who is very obviously under the influence of this very dangerous clack of alt-right, neo-Nazi ideological crazy people. You know, this is their dream. Their dream was never Donald Trump. Their dream was an actual person with billions of dollars. Right. And they've got him. 
if I'd been having a fun moment of fuckery, it would be R.I.P. James O'Keefe. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, you and I'll take that for my moment of fuckery. James O'Keefe, he's being benched by Project Veritas, the organization he started, for not completely clear, right? I mean, some level of uh, staff abuse, but probably there's more than that. You'll be shocked to know there's staff abuse on the right in a lot of these organizations, Molly, including <laughs> CPAC. But in, in O'Keefe's case, it's particularly delicious because, of course, he's a dick to his staff. He may have some other things that haven't come out yet, but their publicly facing complaint was that O'Keefe is spending their money doing musical theater. <laughs> Yes, amazing. James O'Keefe with a douchebag <laughs> rolls across the plane. <laughs> Thank you, Rick Wilson. You're very welcome. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.